Well, again, good morning, First Baptist. Uh, something I wanted to announce to you is that Tuesday, here in the auditorium at 6.30 p.m., uh, we are going to be having a prayer meeting. That'll be from 6.30 to 7.30. Gary Kopsa will be facilitating that. Uh, could be a difficult day, and we want to be lifting that day up to the Lord in prayer. It's Tuesday here in the auditorium. This Tuesday at 6.30. It'll be from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. So there's a story of a man who used to walk by a clockmaker's shop every single day. And he would walk by that shop, and he would look at his own watch, and he would always synchronize his watch to the one he saw in the shop window. It happened again and again. It happened day after day. Until finally the clockmaker came out one time and said, well, well, what are you doing? And the man was kind of embarrassed. He said, well, you know, my job. He said, I'm the timekeeper at the factory that I work at. So I come by here and my watch is a little off. So I always synchronize it to the clock that you have in the window. Now the clockmaker hears this and he's even more embarrassed. What the man also explained was it was his job to set the alarm bell off at 4 p.m. at the factory every day, and the clockmaker looked at him and said, well, see, my clock in the window's a little off. So I synchronize it to the alarm that goes off at the factory every day at 4 p.m. So the question here was, whose clock is right? It speaks to a larger issue at hand. Where does the truth come from? We're living in a world that seems increasingly on fire. The strange thing is some people saw this coming. Uh, there was an article called Francis Schaeffer, if you're familiar with the theologian Francis Schaeffer. Um, he warned us about 2020. And the writer of the article comments on this book, the entitled the, the, the book by Francis Schaeffer was called The Church at the End of the 20th Century. He said this, the contemporary church must take truth seriously enough to be like the early church, scorned by the religious and secular alike. In other words, the church needs the backbone of the apostles, willing to face shame and rejection for the sake of the unchanging Gospels. Matter of fact, you heard in that reading by Jennifer Reed today what those men were willing to endure to face those counsels and those interrogations they, they went through, those early apostles, Peter and John. But Schaefer also warns about hypocrisy. He says, A culture attracted to authenticity will see it through the veneer of a church that practices untruths. This is a time, he writes, to show a generation who thinks that the concept of truth is unthinkable, that we do take truth seriously in both our doctrine and in our life. The article goes on to say, in 2020, Schaefer's warning about hypocrisy also applies to a Christian's willingness to spread political conspiracies and scientific speculation. Those who wish to persuade others must, learn, must earn their trust through intellectual integrity. See, as Christians, we have the truth. But like that clockmaker above, we can synchronize our truth to the wrong sources. Never in the history of mankind is there as much information available as there is in this very moment. 
and never before have we had more responsibility to distinguish what's truth and what's not. There are so many people who are screaming they have the truth, so the question for us is, how do I synchronize my life to God's Word? How do I synchronize my life to God's Word? I don't want to tune it in to some clock that's off, that's so easy to do. That's the subject I want to talk about this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll look at most of the chapter, although I'll just be reading two sections of it right now. I'm going to start off with uh, verses 6 through 15, then I'll go to verses 20 through 24. But see, there's this campaign going against the Philistines, as we see. And one brave man, the son of Saul, Jonathan, decides he and his armor bearer, the two of them are going to take on a group of Philistines that they see encamped. We pick up here at verse 6. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting at verse 6. <clears throat> Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, hard soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now, at this point, Saul and some other people see what's going on, and they decide to join in the fray. We pick it up then at verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after him in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. You may be seated. So we're continuing this series in 1 Samuel, looking at people who are gaining a king. 
and they're learning how to manage with an earthly king. And they'll be frustrated. They'll be torn at times. Do we follow the Lord? Do we follow this king? And whom are we going to ultimately place our trust? Last week, we saw Saul make a very impetuous kind of a decision. He took matters into his own hands. The Samuel prophet had not yet arrived at the battle, but Saul said, I'm going to make the sacrifice myself. And it was told him he would lose his kingship because of this. Now, because he's not trusting in the words, Lord, the Lord's word, he's going to go down a very dark, dangerous, and destructive path. So as we deal with this topic this morning, how do we synchronize our lives? I want to go through the passage like this. Trusting, we'll see first, trusting God's word inspires courage. We'll see that rejecting God's word brings destruction. And then we'll look at three ways to synchronize our lives to the word of God. We'll talk about three ways to do that. So then, we see God's word inspiring courage. Now check out what this guy Jonathan does, okay? Because he and his armor bearer decide that God is with them and they are going to take on this outpost of Philistines, just the two of them. And we see it happening. The text says there in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other, Sena. This was a canyon. As a matter of fact, this is a photo from Israel. They think this could be the spot where they made their way uh, down to this group of Philistines, worming their way through this, these two crags, the rocks on either side, makes this canyon. And so they're going through there. And then when they get there, he says to his armor bearer in verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, notice what he says about them. He refers to them as uncircumcised. Now, this is a reference to them being unbelievers, that they not had they'd not accepted the, uh, the covenant. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, I have a slide here. Just kidding, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Don't, don't run out. Ask your parents, okay? It's a strange way to show a sign of a covenant. Probably what's going on here is because one of the promises made to Abraham was that he would have a whole lot of offspring. So often, they would see the, uh, the reminder, they would have the reminder of this promise that was made to Abraham that he would have all kinds of offspring. So, this would be a... Hold on here. These Philistines were not followers of God. They're referred to then as these uncircumcised. And the Israelites were called to be the executor of divine judgment on them. They were the ones that were supposed to go in the land and get rid of the Philistines. That was the command. So Jonathan's living out this command. And he trusted the word of God. And that empowered him to be bold and courageous. Now ask yourself just for a moment, what is the most bold and courageous thing you could do for the Lord this coming week? I came across this story. It appeared in the Chicago Tribune. In this place called Naperville, Illinois, there were a group of guys that did this thing called the old-timers softball game. Now, the only problem with the old-timers softball game is that there are often heart attacks during the softball game. (laughs) 
And one man named Bill Body was interviewed. He said, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die along. I'm going to die doing what I love doing, whether it's playing softball, fishing, hunting, or something else. Now, in response to that, another Christian writer, Mark Galley, said this. He said, we're often tempted in the church to slow down, to cut back, take it easy because we get tired of taking risks. And in Christ's work, there are a lot of emotional or spiritual risks. But Bill Body is exactly right. Life itself is a risk. We're all going to die. So we may as well get involved taking the risks and do the things in Christ we really love. Now, I don't think this is a call to do anything silly or ridiculous. Don't take your own health and jeopardize it. But what kind of risk are you willing to take for the Lord? What gift do you have that you're not using? I think we have some teachers here. I think we have uh, some people here that should be maybe involved in the community doing some things they currently are not. What's stopping you? What's stopping you from sharing the gospel with that person that's just nagging you day after day after day that God is not taking out of your thoughts? We can do it. There's a town out there that needs Jesus. On Christmas Eve, uh, just as quickly as I could count, there were somewhere between 10 and 15 people who indicated they put their trust in Jesus Christ this past Christmas Eve. I say that to say that people are coming that need the gospel. And God has chosen us to be the instruments to share the gospel with them. So Jonathan was courageous. He was bold. He trusted the word of God. But then what about his father, Saul? Because we get a different story with him. Trust brought about courageous acts. However, rejecting God's word is going to bring destruction. It's going to bring destruction. We're watching this man, Saul, deteriorating as he's going further down a dark road. He's making foolish decisions. His spiritual advisor, Samuel, is out of the picture now. Samuel made that pronouncement in the last chapter that you're going to lose your kingdom. So we find someone else. If we look back in the beginning of chapter 14 and verses 2 and 3, it says, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah. Now look very closely at what it says about Ahijah, especially this genealogy. The son of Ahitub... Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, careful connections being made here between this current priest advising Saul and the ungodly line of Eli. Remember, Eli's wicked sons. They were taking advantage of the women who were serving in the, uh, the tabernacle, they were stealing uh, sacrifices for themselves. So he has this ungodly advisor. It says that the glory had departed from those priests. We saw in the last chapter, now the glory has departed from Saul. And now he's getting dangerous advice from this man. Wearing the ephod indicated that he was going to be carrying the Urim and the Thummim, the two rocks that the Israelites would use to consult the Lord. So it's a dangerous road. Saul had rejected God's hierarchy. He wouldn't wait on Samuel to make the sacrifice. What's he going to do now? 
Well, he's hanging out in a pomegranate cave, but he should be out fighting. His son ran out and did the work. And one commentator puts it this way, that Saul is a person who prays when he should act and acts when he should pray. And then he gets dumber. See, Jonathan acted in faith. He brought about this great victory. The Lord was with him. But Saul's taking this all very personally. Look at verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And, listen to this very carefully, listen to the pronouns here. And I am avenged on my enemies. He's getting prideful. He's wanting glory. He's taking it all very personally. He might be feeling a little insecure now that he's seen his son have this wonderful military victory doing the thing that he should have been doing himself. As a matter of fact, his son Jonathan goes ahead and eats some honey. And just as his father is about to kill him, the people stop him. You see it down in verse 45. You see, Saul's a control freak. He's trying to control what God can only do, and he's acting with madness. There's another comment from a uh, same guy, same uh, commentator that's, in, that's very insightful. Many believers experience unnecessary confusion and complications in their lives because they will not relinquish control to God. What happens when a culture of people who believe that there is no truth, that's where we find ourselves now, that is postmodernism. truth is relative to whoever might be speaking, and they only want power, they want to take control. I mean, this is really the story of history, isn't it? One person after another after another, by one means or, or another, trying to take control. But what happens when churches lose their way in this milieu of what's going on in the culture? You know, we've got a very simple mission here at First Baptist Church. You see it written up there. To know Him, that Him is referencing to God, to know God and to make God known. That's what we're here to do. In the article that I read at the beginning of the sermon, that was from the Gospel Coalition, the author quotes Francis Schaeffer again. He says this, the mark of a Christian is that our love must have a form that the world may observe it. It must be seeable. He goes on to say, but sadly, what the world sees in much of the church today isn't love toward our political rivals or ideological opponents, and that fighting has spilled into our churches. Like no other year in my memory, congregations are torn asunder by ethnic tensions, a contested election, and our pandemic response. If we're to wage war, it needs to be in our divisiveness. Are we waging war on what divides us? So then, how do I synchronize my life to God's word? How do I synchronize my life to God's? I want to suggest three ways to do this. Um, first of all, find the false guidance. Find the false guidance. Who is informing you? And what information are they giving you? And who are they? Whenever I was growing up over on the, uh, the east coast of North Carolina, the northern part of the Outer Banks is an island called Nags Head. And the story I was always told growing up about Nags Head is that it got its name 
because they used to hang a light around a horse's neck. This has probably been in like the 1800s, you know, there was no electricity. They would, uh, looters would hang that light around a horse's head and set it loose on, on the coast. And as the horse was walking along, and it would raise its head and lower its head, uh, it would look like a ship bobbing up and down in the ocean. And as other ships that were coming along saw that, and they, th they thought they were other ships, they would uh, beach themselves, they would run aground, and when they would run aground, other people would come and they would loot those ships. The reason I tell that story is because this is a lot, that's what a lot of conspiracy theories are doing to Christians right now. They'll use a few Bible verses to sound Christian, but then there's a lie in what they're saying. They'll make unprovable accusations. There's one out there right now you may have heard of it. I'm going to call it out. It's called Q. Sometimes it's referred to as QAnon. And uh, there were a number of people, if you saw those riots at the Capitol, that were raising a big sign. One said, Q sent me here. Well, what in the world is Q? I did a little digging on this. And there are Christians getting caught up in this. As a matter of fact, there's churches being split over this. Um, according to Wikipedia, Q was a person who claimed to be a high-level government official with Q clearance who has access to classified information involving the Trump administration and its opponents in the United States. So this person, Q, puts these tweets and posts out there on social media, making uh, a lot of uh, outlandish claims, such as, um, and by the way, these have all been disproven. One was that Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested and would attempt to flee the country. That prediction failed. Uh, John McCain would resign from the U.S. Senate. He remained in the Senate until his death in August 2018. Pope Francis would be arrested on felony charges. He's not been arrested. So be very careful when you spend time on the Internet, hours pouring over uh, these kind of conspiracy theories. Be very uh, careful of this. And maybe you've gotten caught up in one. Look, it happens. The stuff's interesting and you're bored at work, whatever. But uh, it's very, very damaging and it's very, very dangerous. And I really like this assessment of the website that Q has espoused. Uh, this was an article in Christianity Today entitled, QAnon is a Wolf in Wolf's Clothing. And the writer stated this, one reason Q appeals to Christians is it can feel like a way to live out Jesus' instruction to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. The problem, one pastor says, for followers of QAnon who are Christians is that they actually aren't being shrewd enough. QAnon is predatory drivel that undermines the authority of Scripture and pilfers trust we owe only to Christ. American Christians have a responsibility to learn to identify it and flee. I agree 100% with that. We have got to flee these conspiracies and this false guidance. So what do I trust in? What do I tune into? And I would suggest to tune into tested training. Tune into tested training. And here at First Baptist Church, uh, you know, we hold to the Great Commission. We believe we are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But there's a whole world of teachers out there on the Internet the only thing you need to get out there on the internet and call yourself a pastor is a camera. That's it. Then you can upload it to wherever you want to upload it to and call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. 
Again, our mission is to know God and to make him known. In order to do that, our people have to be extremely careful who they're allowing to influence them. Whose teaching are you receiving? You know, if you want to be a doctor, uh, you've got to go through boards. They won't let you just start doing surgery until you pass a lot of exams. If you want to be an attorney, you've got to pass the bar exam. For Christian pastors, we have things in place, but some people uh, will not abide by them. I think that if you're a, a Christian and you're a pastor, that you need to be approved, if not formally, somehow. That's the purpose of ordination, by the way. Some important questions I would ask that I would get answered before I would go and listen to someone online is, well, do they have training? If they have training, who did the training? If they went to seminary, where did they go? If so, if, what, what seminary uh, out there is, is not worth its salt? There's plenty of them. There's a lot of seminaries out there that you would not want to sit under the teaching of those folks. They've actually denied the inerrancy of the scriptures. And even with all of those things in place, you've got to be very careful in who you decide to listen to. That applies to me as it does to anyone. It doesn't mean you have to agree with someone on everything. There are some very important areas of agreement. Sound doctrine. Now, this is one of the reasons I really like Right Now Media. I was very skeptical of it at first because there's just so many teachers on there. But I do believe Right Now Media does a good job of filtering out the teachers that you don't want to be listening to. They have a really good belief statement on their website, and they follow that very closely. I think they've got solid teachers on there. As a matter of fact, uh, here at First Baptist, we provide everyone with an account to Right Now Media, if you want. If you don't know what it is, it's just this huge uh, online repository of uh, Bible teachers and videos with Bible lessons. And if you want to, an account, we can, we can get you one. Actually, if you just go to our website, fbcsheridanwy.org, then you go over to the Ministries tab. Uh, you can go down to Right Now Media and fill out a form that we have there. And then we can get you access to uh, Right Now Media. It's, it's worth having. It's worth listening to. You can listen to it in your car when you're going back and forth and, and here and there. But I believe that we, especially we as pastors and teachers, need to be accountable. When I stand in front of you all, every word that comes out of my mouth, I'm accountable, before, before, I, I'm accountable to before God. So I've got to be very careful. And I took very seriously my, my own ordination. When I took vows to God and how I would proceed in gospel ministry. And none of us are going to do it exactly right. We're all fallen people. We do our best. If you have questions about certain teachers or pastors... I'm happy to help you in any way that I can. And then thirdly, we want to put it into practice. We want to put it into practice. It's not enough to just be fact-gathering. We need to be learning, and then we need to be incorporating uh, the teaching that we're getting into our everyday lives. As a matter of fact, just recently we started Theology Thursdays, is what, uh, what I'm calling it. And it's not so much about me just coming in and doing a data dump. That's not the purpose of what we're doing on Thursday nights. 
Uh, what we are doing is showing how to live out what it is we profess to believe. It's about doing theology. It's about living theology. Theology, the formal, the formal definition is just the study of God. It's the science of learning about God. Because, see, every single day we are in our daily lives proclaiming what we believe to be true about God. And this comes into play in, in a number of the decisions that you and I make uh, during the day and, and the weeks and months and the years of life. For, just for example, um, when you are thinking about God, who He is and imagining Him, you are doing theology in that moment. When you are sharing the gospel with someone, you're assuming something about them, that they have a problem, an issue, a sin problem that's separating them from God, and you want to show them like you were shown. How do you get redemption from that? When you read the Bible, you are doing theology. You are picking up the written Word of God, and you are taking in its truth and what you believe about it and how to go about interpreting it and applying it, you're doing theology. When you were sick, how many times have you been sick and thought to yourself, is God punishing me? How you think about being sick or others being sick. And then voting. We're in a unique time in history. We live in a democracy and we cast votes. And then choosing a spouse or who we're going to date who we're going to be friends with. We are doing theology and professing what we believe to be true about God in these moments. Theology is something that we do. So again, Thursday evenings at 7, if you'd like to join us, that's what we're going to be doing, learning how to do theology in our everyday lives and unpacking what it is we believe about God. So putting this all together, just very simply, trust God's perfect guidance. Trust God's perfect guidance. You know, whenever I drive home, back when I was working in Maryland, I'd drive uh, home to West Virginia. On that ride on I-64, at some point I would go over uh, Afton Mountain. Now, we called it a mountain, okay? Since I moved to Wyoming, this is, I know what mountains are now. It was a hill. So we called it a mountain, all right? That's what you had back in the east. So Afton Mountain was just about always completely fogged in. I remember the first time I went over Afton Mountain. Again, this is on the interstate. You've got to slow down to a crawl when you're about to go over uh, Afton Mountain because it's always really fogged in. And I remember going over that mountain, and the only thing I could see was a single reflector right there in the middle of the road, right there on the dotted line. And I had to slow down because... I'd see the single reflector, I was crawling along, and then pretty soon I'd see the next reflector. And then I'd see the next reflector. And then I thought, you know, this is how God guides us. He shows me how far I need to go at any given moment. And step by step, I move from one reflector, one light, to the next light, confident of God's guidance. I let go of the need to see his complete plan. I don't know what that is. But he gives me enough light to see the next thing I need to do and the next right thing and the next right thing. We don't get a spotlight that shines the entire path. With God's guidance, you get a lamp around your feet. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we desperately need your truth your guidance. God, help us to see and recognize those voices that are 
having a negative influence on us that are causing us to have an unsynchronized kind of life with your truth. Father, I pray that we would seek your truth, that we would test the training that we are receiving. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just gain intellectual knowledge, but Lord, we would, we, it would inform the way that we live every single day, that we would actually do what we believe to be true. Holy Spirit, guide us. I pray for our country this week. I pray, God, that we would not be given to more conspiracy theories. I pray, Lord, that we would pray for the best for the United States of America. Lord, that you would give us the best, that people would make good decisions about where they should be and how they should respond. I pray for peace on Inauguration Day. And God, I pray that Christians would lead the way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, if you would like prayer this morning, feel free to meet either myself or one of the other elders down front. Have a wonderful day and you're dismissed.